The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius, your source for horror, sci-fi, suspense, and all things violent. Hey, what's going on, guys? Thank you so much for joining me today on Vicious Whispers, episode 102. I have a very special guest today. He is a good friend, a fellow 10th Planet Jiu-Jitsu teammate and purple belt, my buddy, Michael Plaster. Michael, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thank you so much, man. I appreciate you having me on. It was cool. Yeah, man, last time we saw each other was right at the start of the pandemic. Uh, so, shit, it's been about a year. Yeah, man. It's been like that with everyone pretty much. Like, we just, everyone hunkered down trying to figure out what's going on. And then now, now uh, a year later, people are starting to come out of the woodwork and feel like they have a, a good understanding of the lay of the land. Yeah. Now, I was wondering, when did you, when did you start training at headquarters? Um, I think I was about 2013 or so. Um, I, I have a feeling we were kind of about the same time. Yeah, 2013 is when I started um, with Eddie. Uh, I had moved from Austin, Texas to L.A. to pursue filmmaking. And then uh, I had always heard about Eddie Bravo. Um, and then finally, like, after six months of being here, I decided to just jump in. That's awesome. And with your filmmaking, do you do – now, what What do you do with filmmaking? I know you've done a lot of the EBIs, Correct. Yeah, when uh, EBI was first uh, first came out, I, I jumped right on that and started working with Eddie and Victor Davila and Manny Loya, who's the director. And um, I've just been following athletes behind the scenes uh, and interviews um, for the last seven years. So I have this huge archive of like of uh, grappling footage and, and athletes. That's awesome. Now, when you first wanted to go into filmmaking, did you have any idea it would be sports related? Was that something that was interesting to you? Yeah. So, in when when I was, let's see, my my father put uh, my father put uh, a camera in my hand when I was thirteen years old, and I started, you know, just recording what's around me, and then I started getting into editing to uh, to figure out how to show it to people, and. At that time, I had uh, I was in um, karate at that time at 13 years old, and then a couple years later, I got into jujitsu. I'm sorry, into uh, capoeira, and I did capoeira for like 10 years after that. But um, as soon as I brought my camera to capoeira and started interviewing people there and and the lifestyle, uh, I I knew that I wanted to um, combine my love for documentary and filmmaking with sports, uh, martial arts. So I had uh, gone to Brazil and, and shot there uh, doing capoeira and all around the United States. And um, when the time came to come to L.A., I knew that I just want to combine uh, martial arts or jujitsu with, with uh, filmmaking. That's awesome. Um, and you did a really cool piece for me too, uh, paying the price, the little 15 minute video about, uh, my TBI stuff. Uh, you put that together and that was <coughs> really cool. I hope you get, yeah, I hope you get some mileage out of that. I don't know. You know, it's, uh, there's a lot of, it's all the content that's coming out. Like I, I want to see a lot more from the people that I uh, enjoy listening to, such as yourself. And, um, 
I just think that, you know, the audience just like the world needs to hear what your stories are, you know? That's what, that's what I'm hoping, man. I'm getting excited because I'm almost done with my traumatic brain injury book. Um, dude, I've wanted to throw that thing to the side so many times. I just want to be done with it. But I keep reminding myself, um, fuck, I think there are a lot of people that can benefit from it that have no idea what they're going through. And one of the things I'm really pushing with the book is like I'm going pretty deep into the shit that I was going through, what I was feeling, uh, making myself vulnerable. And just trying to get people to, hey, take an honest look at yourself. I mean, because, I, dude, I honestly yeah. didn't think I was in a bad place. And so, uh, for the audience, the reason I brought Michael on today is because I saw a post of his that um, it was of all these supplements. And all the supplements that I'm taking, very similar to the ones I'm taking. And you mentioned about uh, going to Dr. Gordon and how much it's helped you. So, that's yeah. what I wanted to talk about today. Um Let's, if you could tell me a little, well, tell us about uh, why you went to Dr. Gordon and, um, you know, how you have dealt with any kind of, whether it's depression, anxiety, whatever, uh, in your life. For sure. Are, are you a student? I mean, are you a patient of Dr. Mark Gordon? Um, not current. I was. So I did. Oh, you were? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So that is where, dude, that was my first step in my recovering from traumatic brain injury. Uh, they, my buddy, I had two different friends send me the, the Joe Rogan episode. I didn't want to watch it, but it was like two or three people sent it to me. Finally watched it. I told my wife, I was like, I don't think I need this, but let me just do the blood work. I did the blood work and yeah. they were like, yeah, you need this shit. Uh, yeah. And it was two weeks after, man. I was in my backyard, two weeks after being on the supplements. Um, and I just started breaking down crying because I, it was this absence of depression, uh, anxiety, irritability, anger. All the shit that I had thought was normal, all of a sudden it wasn't there. And I was like, dude, I, just, I would just started crying. I'm like, holy shit, I can't believe that had been my normal. My normal was fucking not normal. <laughs> Yeah, I actually have a very similar story. Um, pretty much what happened was I saw the first Joe Rogan experience uh, episode with Dr. Mark Gordon. And it wasn't until the second time he came on that uh, I was like, you know what? What this guy's saying, it, it sounds like I need to just talk to him. He knows that he's the guy who knows who's done the research. So let me just go to the source, you know, go to the guy who knows. And, um, I, I had always experienced uh, severe chronic depression uh, that come and uh, that came and went every six months of my life. So every six months or so, I just do go through a deep crash, and then I'd slowly climb my way out, and then again it would it'd crash um, six months later. Um, and yeah, I went to Dr. Mark Gordon, uh, got the proto, uh, got the whole blood panel done, and it turned out that that my uh, testosterone was like half of what it should have been and a couple other I was pre-diabetic um, I'm I'm six foot and uh, I was 180 at the time so like I, I was not overweight I was in shape but I was pre-diabetic so uh, that kind of worried me I was like damn man that's um, my father's diabetic now he's in his 70s and I'm like yeah I don't want to turn out that way you know so um, he Dr. Mark Gordon was great because uh, he gave me uh, an opportunity to to use his lab and his office to uh, to find out uh, what's wrong and what can be done. So uh, he he was great since I was like a JRE listener, early adopter. He uh, 
he helped me out a lot and like you know with the price and all that but um it wasn't when i first got on the protocol and it was three months later i was like okay well, yeah i mean i feel fine i feel fine. i haven't really i didn't really notice any changes six months in i noticed i'm like wow i haven't really been depressed lately i haven't really been like had the fog you know um and then a year came around without any uh negative symptoms and i that's what got me worried i was like oh man this is uh i'm gonna crash real hard you know like i've never gone a year without feeling depressed and uh finally a, a year and a half came around and two years i'm like okay well maybe i'm out of the woods you know uh and so I've, I've, I'm still on the same protocol that Dr. Mark Gordon provided me. Um, uh, we, I still do uh, regular blood panels with him just to make sure everything's on point. And what's what surprised me is I didn't realize the instability that having some sort of hormone imbalance can bring to your life. Um, and because of that, with this new awareness to myself, I looked at my relationships and my work and uh, my habits. And I'm like, wow, like I, I'm actually, I have a clean slate here as an adult with, uh, you know, I have strong values and uh, conservative and, and liberal. Just, I, I want to see, I want to conserve the, um, the good things. And I want to liberate the, the things that need to, uh, um, to be updated, you know, I want to, um, progressive values too. But anyway, I'm just saying that, uh, I have like this wide ranging of, um, ways of looking at the world. And now that I had this free energy and new awareness, I was able to apply that adult mind to, um, problems in my life and actually experience some sort of stability. Um, so it, like thinking about it makes me overwhelmed um, because I, it, I know there's so many people out there. Nearly everyone ne needs to take a look at their hormones, you know, but there's so many people out there that are suffering and they, they're just dealing with it because that's all they know how to do. Uh, but there are uh, answers out there to, to improve your life biochemically mentally emotionally um and then and so it's important for people to know that there are answers it's just you have to be lucky enough to find them in the right place for sure and um talking about that your open-minded skepticism that's one of the yeah, things i respect yeah. about you um and especially because it dude it's fucking tricky uh <laughs> being online social media especially in uh you know, the 10th Planet group, um, you know, and, and like my approach is, man, I really don't know shit. Like I know, like, and, and I don't think any of us do. Like we're all just trying to get through this thing and fucking none of us really know and there is no real truth. Um, so no, I do appreciate your take on that. Uh, the open-minded skepticism I got uh, from uh, Thomas Campbell, who's, uh, who, who's a physicist who wrote uh, My Big Theory of Everything. And uh, he really... Uh, laid out a foundation on how to look at the world and i've been studying his work for the last 10 years or so since 2010 so 11 years that's awesome no i yeah. i like that i I, I think that's a i think that's a smart 
thing to do. I think I wish more people would do it instead of just thinking that whatever they see or whatever they believe is the truth. Um, yeah. and then ready to yeah, fight people. Yeah. You have to be open to new information and you have to have a, a, a system of filters to process, uh, the information to figure out if it's noise or if it's relevant and if it's relevant, like how much meaning and truth is in that information. And you have to have like this patience and rigorous attitude at looking, uh, at phenomena in the world. If you just take what the uh, perceived authority tells you as fact, you, you're going to be wrong. I mean, because they're not, they might, whether they're wrong or right, they might not even have your uh, best interest at heart. So I think it's like conformity is a real big issue for me, like understanding, seeing society, uh, conformity in society. And it seems like everyone I see outside wearing a mask, um, they're conforming to the idea that that's uh, necessary. And I have my own opinions about that, but um, I'm whether wearing a mask is right or wrong or if you have to or not, whatever, I don't care. But just seeing how people conform around these topics is what's interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, no, man, yeah. I, I, I've, I've pretty much tuned out everything. Um, like the last year, whether it's politics, whether it's fucking the virus, whether, dude, I just had to turn all that shit off because I know how I'm gonna go with it. Um, but uh, let's go back to depression because, dude, yeah. I never realized that I was depressed. So even though I was suicidal most of my life, even though I fucking hated myself, even though I had all these other things, all these different emotions. I never realized I was depressed, dude. It was. I actually went to um, some jiu-jitsu tournament. I forget which, which which one it was, but I was there, man, and I was like almost bursting into tears. I couldn't talk to anyone. You might, I think you were there, um, and I went home, and that's when I realized, like, oh shit, like that's severe depression, you know. Um, so, what yeah. was what was depression for you? When were you able to like realize, like, and how young were you when you started feeling this way? Depression started for me very early on because I had an extremely chaotic childhood, uh, which included all forms of abuse. Uh, aside from sexual, I got skated by not having any sexual abuse. But uh, um, as soon as I can remember, at the earliest I can remember, I remember uh, I remember like praying to God at like a very, very early age to just, just like kill me or take me to take me away from this suffering. It's like, is there, there must be something else, you know, at a very, very young age. And the reason for that was because I grew up in um, a single parent household. My mom um, divorced my father when I was three years old. I had or I have an older, six years older brother, seven years older sister from another father, same mother. And they all had friends that were their age too. So they were six, seven, eight years older than me. Everyone would come around and all these kids had no like parental supervision at all. So they were just running wild in the streets. Um, and because of that, I don't know if you know Lord of the Flies very well, but uh, I was piggy for sure. Like 100%, I was a sacrificial lamb. 
and uh, um, they would drive me through the point of just insanity. They would just torture me, beat me up. Several times I'd come so close to, to death in, in various forms. And um, I just thought that was life. I didn't know anything different. Like it, uh, from three years old up till 15 years old, that was my life. And um, I was just a, a man. I was a wild man. I was a wild kid, you know. Uh, and there's there's a, a bunch of stories on the actual types of abuse. But like I was, uh, my mom. She was she was always in denial, and uh, uh, probably because she wasn't a very um, capable person, you know, capable uh, parent. And so she would just go off to work. Forget about any problems that are hap- that's happening at home. Meanwhile, my brother is like uh, beating me up. You know, hit, hit, their friends are like uh, torturing me with like all anything they can devise in their mind. And um, when I brought this up to my mom with a girlfriend uh, years back, she was like, "Oh, it was fine. It was fine." I'm like, "Come on, come on." And she was like, "Well, there was this one time." Meanwhile, there's like hundreds of times, but there was this one time I came home from work and your your brother was hanging you by your neck with a bed sheet off the second story balcony. I was like, okay, what? That's the one thing that you're willing to admit? And she was like, yeah, that was kind of crazy. But other than that, I'm like, yeah, okay. I also got thrown off that balcony, by the way. When, when you would have the severe depression, how bad would that be would you be able to function would you be able to work would you be able to go train um what were when you had your you know if it would hit every six months or whatever like maybe if you could kind of describe what was going on during those times um uh, irritability sleeping long hours and uh not having if i did work out i'd be super sore for days um, horrible memory, uh, mood swings, and uh, just I, I also at that time throughout, especially throughout my teens and early twenties, I since I wasn't taught very much about society, I wasn't really put in front of people um, in in a way that would be um, like normal, like normal society society like interactions um i had to experiment myself and and do some social experiments and figure out what how people were reacting and why because i didn't know how to act i was just um like it like as wild as possible so when i would go into these depressed depressing moods i would also get um creative in a way with these uh social experiments like trying to figure out you know who's my friend why are they my friend um what do they need like how do i um help people like just real basic things like that i wasn't taught and so when i was depressed uh, people kind of excused me as being um unreliable uh because I would just disappear for a month. You know, I would just not answer any calls, stay in my room all day, uh, be up all night, sleep forever, 10 hours, 12 hours, whatever. And um, people kind of just accepted it, you know. So 
Uh, but my memory has always been like really bad. That never really came back for me. Um, and then every, after I experienced some of that deep, dark, abyssal depression, I would slowly climb out over a few days, a couple weeks, and um, start to interact with the world as best as I could at that time. Did you have a lot of anger towards yourself because of that? Like, I don't know, because that's one of the things that this hormone regulation helped me with. I kind of forgave myself for a lot. I was like, man, I was doing my best, you know, because I know, I know a lot of people with depression sometimes get like, they make it even worse because they're mad at themselves for feeling this way and they can't understand why they're feeling this way. Yeah, um, uh, all throughout um, my young uh, child or child developmental years up until my teens, I had rage issues uh, for sure. Like that was the only uh, tool I had to survive was just rage out. <laughs> and anyone who uh, would intentionally get get um, violent towards me or intentionally try to hurt my feelings, that's what it would happen. I just just rage out. <laughs> so I was intimate with that. And then when I started um, living, living with my dad again at 15, that's when I started to get more control over these emotions, uh, these negative emotions, but, um, and more um, laid back. Because in a way, society, regular life is super easy. It's like there, there's hardly any danger out there um, in comparison to what I was um, living through. So like, uh, it was kind of easy to not have to rely on those old tools anymore, uh, and develop new ones. Now, when did, uh, when did you first start using cannabis and did that mm-hmm. seem to help? Um, and like, so what, when did you start using it and why were you using it? Yeah, probably 15 years old, 16 years old is when I started smoking weed um, in Austin, Texas. But uh, that was just fun. You know, like I wasn't really into alcohol. I didn't really take alcohol very well. And um, anytime I went to a party or something, smoking weed would be the the choice. Um, It wasn't until um, later um, over the last eight years that I started looking at cannabis as a uh, a medical tool. Um, and when I started looking at it like that, like um, this could actually just imp- help me improve my life if I use it right, then um, things got a lot easier. Like I got more into understanding uh, CBD um, uh, and all these different uh, forms that you can take the cannabis. And uh, most recently, um, since... I've been training over the last, um, well, yeah, maybe five years. I've been smoking pretty regularly. And uh, as long as I I can feel like if I smoke too much that everything kind of like becomes less productive, you know. So I just kind of feel my body every day um, and, and just say like, okay, like you need to chill out, chill out on like sugar and carbs for, for a few days, you know, or you need to, uh, get more protein cause you're feeling kind of weak or, or sore. Um, and then I use the cannabis as like, um, a supplement to 
make my mood uh, lift, but also introspection, creativity, and um, just help with the general um, general wear and tear of training jujitsu. Uh, for some reason, uh, smoking after jujitsu, it's, it's really helpful, you know, it helps you wind down, uh, as well as, uh, blocks a lot of those inflammation, a lot of the inflammation that happens, um, through training. Yeah, no, dude, I'm Yeah. a, I'm a big believer. Whenever I would go to headquarters, I'd be ripped. And, uh, <laughs> Mm hmm and even now before I do yoga, I'm always smoking prior and then I smoke afterwards and, mm hmm and it works for me. I just, You know, and, and I often, I often wonder how much of a crutch it is. Um, I'm doing a chapter pretty soon on uh, psychedelics and uh, mm. and really looking at my cannabis use. Because, um, yeah, I don't want it to be a crutch. I don't want to do anything that's harming me. But I was like, for now, and I've been using daily for 15 years, like I since I was 15, so 33 years. You know, and I was like, I was like, shit, I'm still being productive. And so it's not. Yeah. It's not terrible. There, there's worse things. I, and you know, like, I know it makes me a better father, a better uh, husband, and so. Uh, and there's I'm probably not far reasons. behind you. Yeah, yeah. So, um, now, do you think? And you maybe you had conversations with Dr. Gordon on this. Do you think you had a TBI and this started the For sure. hormone? Okay, and especially with all the abuse as a kid. Uh, Yeah, like the amount the amount of hits to my head are innumerable. I busted my head open four times, um, one on each side of my head here, um, on the front and the back. Um, twice on a trampoline spring, uh, once on a fireplace on the edge of a fireplace, and then uh, a fourth time was uh, riding my bicycle and and falling off and hitting my head on the concrete. Um, and all those took place um, prior to 10 years old, 11 years old, maybe. Um, yeah, and so those are all like one of those just getting just a light bump to the head. I would say you're you need to treat yourself like you have TBI, you know, uh, but no doubt um, my brain has been altered by traumatic brain injury from just all the hits to the head. For sure. Yeah. One one thing that um uh you you talked about uh, you're doing a chapter on psychedelics, although ketamine is not a psychedelic, um, at therapeutic levels, there's some really interesting things that happen uh, with the disassociation from the ego and from uh, the body. Um, I don't know if you saw that, but I did a a podcast with a a guy who owns a ketamine. assisted psychotherapy clinic in Austin, Texas. Um, it's a guy I went to high school with by the name of Will Ratliff. And um, I, once learning about ketamine uh, and learning that like the people who uh, benefited the most from it are the people who are suicidal, uh, severely depressed, people who have uh, burn victims, for instance, they, they, um, they use ketamine to uh, a great benefit, uh, mainly because it doesn't lower your metabolic system. It just removes you from your body. So that pain management is really big with ketamine. Um, I did two sessions um, of ketamine infusion, um, and those were over 45 minutes. And that, I noticed a, a significant improvement in my uh, 
my awareness, my outlook on life, and also the pain in my body uh, going away after doing ketamine. So um, if you have pain in your body, it, you might want to look into that. And it's not, it's not addictive. It's not like you're not going to get – it's not like opium, you know. And that was definitely yeah. one of my concerns too when I first saw it because someone just recommended I do it. He's like, I know a doctor, blah blah blah. And just my first thought was like, oh, was like that sounds like a hardcore thing. And uh, but yeah, I love it. <laughs> I think it's great. Of course, I'm also a big fan of like deprivation tanks and meditation and you know separating yourself from the idea that you have of the world. You know, getting in touch more with what is observing what is it that is observing what i'm experiencing you know that's um so trying to get as close to that observer as possible i um i find that uh ketamine is a a good tool for that too so which is i guess psychedelic you know study of consciousness yeah um have you had experience with dmt yeah you know i've smoked um several forms of dmt dmt and also um drank ayahuasca um i i've never taken the hit uh, a big enough hit to blast off and dmt there's always that like there's always a a ceiling to this reality that i want to break through but i've never been able to get past it um even with like three giant inhales of like a, a gel pen uh a, you know an e-pen of, of dmt yeah, no, it was, uh, for me, it was like the most beautiful experience I ever had. And it definitely, oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I, I, I love it. Like I'm looking forward to that one again. I'm not the ayahuasca. I'm not so certain about, but I was like, I'm going to do it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's for the book. It's for the research. Uh, yeah. DMT. I mean, uh, I don't know any negative side effects from it, so I would do it regularly if I could, but, um, I just don't have access to it. Um, now do you, what else? So someone would you, would you tell someone that had a TBI or even if they just suspected they, you know, they're not feeling like they should, you know, whether it's depression or anxiety, would you say getting hormones checked would probably be the first thing to do? Um, yeah. So check your diet. Um, if you're eating bread and sugar, cut that out as much as possible. And then, uh, if you're not exercising, get your heart moving at least twice a day. You know, uh, if you can do a good workout once a day, that'd be the best. Um, so nutrition, some exercise, just get your cardiovascular moving first. Um, and you're going to have to build a ritual around those things anyway. So, uh, yeah, you got to do that first and then, uh, start collecting as much information about your experience in life, which is like if you can journal, that's really amazing. Uh, even if it's just notes, you know, like just notes on how you're feeling, notes on, you know, anything you're noticing in your body, uh, in your head, emotional, in your immediate environment, just whatever. It doesn't matter as long as you're doing something um, as far as putting your experience out on paper or on the screen. Um so eat, exercise, take inventory of your life. And a part of that inventory is understanding your biological health. So you should know like what blood type you are, 
you should um, figure out if there's any uh, um, her uh, what do you call it hetero hereditary yeah, heterological uh, hereditary diseases you know find that out and then also get your a complete blood panel done at least once uh, just to see where you're at and then if there is deficiencies um, it would be smart to patch those biological deficiencies before you try to change the world around you because dysfunction if if your biology if your biology is dysfunctional, then that will only disrupt at a core level. That that will only disrupt your life. So if you're trying to make plans, or you're trying to accomplish a goal, or even just stay stable, you know, if you have say low testosterone because you have a traumatic brain injury, or um, there, I mean, there's a, a bunch of things that can go wrong. But if you have that, then you want to deal with that before you try to. Uh, make your life better because then eventually your biology is going to fail you and it's going to disrupt everything. Yeah. I don't know how many times I can say that. <laughs> yeah, no. And I think that's, I think that's huge. Um, and I definitely got to see it. Each of my doctors kind of told me that too. Like, you know, Gordon's protocol probably wouldn't have worked so well if I wasn't also fixing my diet and getting rid of the excess, you know, inflammation and then neurofeedback for sure would not have worked for me if I hadn't done, you know, if I hadn't gotten my hormones right. So, um, yeah, I, I think it just all adds <laughs> to each other and then certain things, yeah, you got to do certain things first, but, uh, dude, that's awesome to see how much, uh, you've improved your life. Uh, I, yeah. Thanks, man. I'm at, I'm the happiest I've ever been. It's crazy. It's mind blowing. Like life, life, knowing how bad it could be, and knowing that you're not there now makes it that much more sweet. You know, I'm so grateful for the quality of life I have now. And just like the pursuit of my happiness. The, you know, just being able to wake up every day and say, okay, I'm going to work on my project now. And then I'm going to go train jujitsu. Like, or whatever, go work out. Um, I'm so thankful for that. And... I, I don't I don't know if it's possible to have that awareness without going through hell, you know. There's a, it seems to me like the people I meet, they have a pretty fixed awareness unless something tragic happens to them, and then it takes them however long to get out of that, and then only then do they have like an understanding of um, something greater than themselves or 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 more grateful. It takes like this disaster. You have to like go through hell before you realize you're in a, a dark cave already. No, and I, I think I think that's where we learn our, our best lessons, man. And uh, and by sharing these, you know, sharing our experiences with other people, I think that will hopefully will make other people realize, oh shit, maybe there is something going on. Maybe I should. Do. Yeah. Yeah. The stack of vitamins that I, I have, like every three days, I take this stack, you know, and. Um, I feel like that's on top of it just being helping my hormones uh, balance. It's also all the nutrition I need for that three days. So I can eat pretty much whatever I want. I stay away from processed foods, try to cut out bread and sugar. But other than that, I, I just don't even think about what I eat really. 
because I know that my nutritional needs are taken care of through this vitamin stack. Um, and then, you know, if, if, if I feel like I'm getting fat or something, then I'll make a change, but it's not crazy. It's not like, um, it's not, it's, it's like, um, having everything you need gives you the opportunity to, or increase, let me say this. Having everything you need increases your brought your bandwidth of choices every day. Whereas, like if you are constantly in need of something and you're in service to your needs, then you don't have any more choices. You kind of like fix to a a more finite reality. That's cool, and like, and that's kind of how I feel with my life. I do. I'm exactly the same place, and uh, like sometimes I'll get a little depressed about not being able to train jujitsu. But then I'm like, well, fuck. I was like, I can go do yoga. I was like, I can go yeah. into sauna. I can go read. I can go practice some German. I can go like <laughs> some shit. I can go play with my kids. It's like yeah. the day is awesome, and it's because I'm not feeling the way I fucking used to where I wanted. To yeah. Go. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Beautiful. What a what a great grateful uh world we are in yeah that's yeah. cool man well thank you for helping spread this dude um uh, i appreciate it. hopefully i will be able to get back to headquarters one of these days and fucking try to train and get anytime man <laughs> you know you know what what's interesting now is i'm looking at jiu-jitsu uh, especially 10th planet jiu-jitsu i'm looking at it like uh like just the movements and not so much the drills and less the the live rolling um like just i'm trying to figure out a, what like the warm-up system that eddie bravo has developed that kind of gives us a map of all the movements we need to know and so you can really play with the intensity of those movements um you can just say like i can only do these movements but i by practicing those repetitions of those then you you get stronger in that specific area without um risking the health your health by you know rolling and and that's exactly where i'm at where i i need to do that because if i try to roll again if i try to go hard if i try to go oh, live, my neck is just a, a mess and i can't do it and so i need to i need to learn how to appreciate it in a, in a way like that and not be so competitive and get my ego out of it yeah have you looked into uh like stem cells or any other forms of therapy I've done stem cells on my shoulders, which is fucking awesome because, dude, I couldn't even sleep on my shoulder, and now I have wow. full use of it. Uh, How long has that been? Uh, probably about two years ago I got that okay. done. Okay, two or three. Cool. Yeah, it was like I, I couldn't train at all at the time. Uh, it was really bad. Um, and then with my neck, it's my upper, like the atlas and axis. Um, mm-hmm. I go to like a specialized NUCA doctor, specialized chiropractic. Uh, but it seems like every time I roll, every time I train, that goes out. So I think I need to strengthen it, but maybe stem cell would be the best thing. Um, um, I hear Chipsa hot. Have you looked into Chipsa at all? No. C-H-I-P-S-A. Uh, they're in Tijuana and they're a, um, uh, a health clinic that saves cancer patients, but they also have seen several athletes and and. <laughs> Uh, people who need uh, help with um, uh, they, they provide stem cell um, a program and then other forms of uh, healing. Okay. They put you in a, 
they put you through the ringer. Uh, I've been meaning to go down there and interview them and, and get an understanding of this, the process specifically. Like I just would like to follow, like, uh, follow some, some patient that's going through it. Well, shit, maybe y'all, maybe y'all, yeah. maybe I'll go yeah. down and you could follow me. And- That'd be cool, man. That'd be really yeah. cool. Yeah. At Chips, a hospital. Um, the name is, I forgot the guy's names. There's two dudes. Okay. But that, there's some there's some uh, podcasts online you can check out. Okay, for sure. No, dude, I'll, yeah. I'll definitely check that out. I I appreciate it. Um, all right. Well, I guess we should probably wrap this up. We cool, um, man. Yeah. I I end every episode with a short story. Today is from Twenty Five Perfect Days plus five more uh, dystopian. They're all standalone stories. So if you haven't heard the other ones, you probably aren't missing out. This one's nine months later. But Michael, thank you so much for being on here. Thanks, dude. Man. It's been awesome. I appreciate you sharing your story. And uh, thank yeah, you. We'll, I will see you soon. Thanks for reaching out, man. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I'm down to do this anytime you want. <laughs> Follow good. up. Yeah. No, that sounds awesome, man. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. Thanks All right, buddy. Again, and I will talk to you later on. Peace, man. Thanks. Nine months later, December 18th, 2042. Maria Salazar's six hours were up, and although it would do little to ease her suffering, she wanted her Motrin. Last night, just before the midnight cutoff, she delivered naturally, refusing the epidural and narcotic offer she couldn't afford. Ignoring the burning from her sutured tear, Maria studied her cot and rolled onto her side, facing the doorway and the other women filling the small room. Just past the narrow aisle lay a gray-haired woman, her face wrinkled, her breast sagging onto her cot. Next to the old woman was a young girl, who was probably not yet in junior high. At first glance, Maria thought the girl was the granddaughter, but they looked nothing alike. The girl's belly was still swollen, and the hospital would never allow a cot to go unused, even for a moment. The last two women were both turned toward the doorway, waiting for miraculous news to arrive, or simply unwilling to face the rest of the room. Maria wondered if any of the women had planned to become pregnant. Maybe they'd been waiting because they couldn't afford a child. Maybe they hadn't been sure they wanted to bring a child into this world. Had any of them seen their baby before the nurses whisked them off to the nursery, or been told what sex their child was, if it was healthy, if it was even still alive. She wanted to ask them how they were dealing with all this, if they felt hollow, like someone had stolen part of their soul. Maria didn't need to say a word. The tears and muffled sobs said it all. If she and Enrique hadn't been so careful, they could have been pregnant years before. There was no denying it would have been difficult to provide for a child on their measly salaries, but it would have been better in so many ways. For one, she would have been by herself in this room, not having to smell the soiled sheets, unchanged dressings, and sour stench of fear. She would have bonded with her baby after the delivery. She would have arranged a payment plan with the hospital. They would have made it work and there wouldn't have been a question of whether she would ever see her only child. But they had waited, and now, here they were. 2042, the year of the baby. The year that man's foolishness had finally caught up with him. 
the year every woman with a uterus became fertile with one act of terrorism, the explosion in the desert changing everything. Maria's gaze traveled from the door to the clock and back to the door. It was almost 12.30. The nurse was running late. A few minutes crawled by before a shadow crossed the doorway. It was Enrique. Black circles of sweat surrounded both armpits of his grease-stained jumpsuit. Enrique treaded quietly across the room with his eyes on his boots. Maria could tell he'd been crying. Enrique never cried. Oh my God, Maria clutched the gown to her chest. What is it, Enrique? What is it? Enrique motioned for Maria to calm down as he knelt at the foot of her cot and stroked her calf. Maria didn't care if she upset the other women. Something was wrong. Not lowering her voice, she said, Tell me. Tell me what's wrong. Is it dead? After shushing her, Enrique cleared his throat. Everything's fine, he said, an obvious lie. I just stopped by the nursery. The baby's okay? Without giving him time to answer, she asked. What is it? Is it a girl? Maybe it's best not to know. That's why they didn't tell us. Maria grabbed him. Tell me. It'll make things harder. Damn it, Enrique. Don't talk like that. I'm taking my baby home. Now tell me what we had. It was a girl. Maria's heart melted. She'd known it was going to be a girl all along. Vanessa. Enrique nodded, then glanced at the clock. You're not going to leave already. What do you want me to do? It takes me ten minutes on the bike, and if I'm late again, I'll be fired. We only have until midnight. Maria struggled to remain calm. How are we going to come up with the money? Enrique shook his head. We can't. There's no way. We have to. It's too much. Where can we get the money? We're still 3000 short. What about your boss? Can't he give you an advance? I already asked him, and even if he did, how would we ever make ends meet after? I'll keep driving, Maria said. We already said this was your last year. We need the money. I'll work doubles, Enrique promised. On your salary, you'd have to work four shifts a day. Maria hadn't meant it to sound mean. There are three of us now. Enrique started to speak, hesitated, and said, Maybe it's better if it's just you and me. Better for her and us. If he'd been closer, Maria would have slapped him. Don't ever say that. He stroked her leg a little harder. You know I don't want that. I want a child more than anything. He fought back tears. What can we do? Even if we could get the money, what kind of life could we give her? A good one. We'd love her more than anyone else ever could. All the love in the world won't give her shelter if we can't pay our rent. It won't feed her if we can't buy food. If we let the church adopt her, she'd have a chance at a better life. Maria glanced a few cots away at a woman in fetal position, heaving, her face a frozen shriek. We are not giving up our daughter, and especially not to that cult. The way isn't a cult. They're helping the government make the world a better place. You believe everything you see on TV? I don't know what to believe anymore. Enrique held his head in his hand. I don't know what to think. I'll die before I let them take our little girl. 
Calm down, Maria. You're still emotional because your hormones are messed up from having a baby. A baby I've never seen. A baby I carried for nearly nine months. I'm sorry, I know how you feel. You can never know how I feel. Enrique let go of her calf and stood. Then where does that leave us? What about the family support specialists? They're nothing more than well-dressed loan sharks. 30% interest with an extra 10% fee tacked on? How could we ever pay that? You know what they'll do if we don't. We'll find a way. I don't even know if they'd approve us. We have to try. Enrique looked at the clock. Fine. I'll go after work. Thank you. Don't get your hopes too high, Maria. He headed for the door. It may not happen. After Enrique left, the old lady turned to Maria, her stale breath blowing into Maria's face, making her nauseous. Is this your first? Maria nodded and pushed herself into a sitting position. Carefully, she swung her legs off the cot and onto the cold floor. She pulled the slushy ice pack from her underwear and set it on a sheet, gingerly got to her feet and hobbled over to the wheelchair in the corner. She needed the Motrin, but wasn't about to wait in this depressing room for it. Maria eased into the wheelchair and rolled out of the room. Both sides of the hallway were lined with expectant mothers lying on cots. As she wheeled down the corridor, several of the women asked her questions. Maria pretended not to hear and headed for the lobby. Vanessa's delivery was a few minutes before midnight, and Maria was one of the last natural birth mothers. All of the unfortunate women on either side of the hall would be having C-sections, the government's answer to the overwhelming surplus of pregnant mothers. Some of them might not even mind, but a C-section had been out of the question for Maria. Not only was it more expensive, it would have taken her longer to recover and get back behind the wheel. That's why she and Enrique had gone on all those walks, had awkward sex several times a day, and, when all else had failed and they were running out of time, broke her water with the sterilized tip of a file he borrowed from work. The cramped hallway led into a lobby, crowded with swollen bellies and worried faces. Maria stared straight ahead and tried not to think of their fears. She had enough of her own. Maria wanted to head to the nursery, but knew she wouldn't be allowed in. She veered right and pressed the button for the elevator and rolled inside when it opened. The bloodied nurse standing next to the control panel asked Maria what floor she wanted. Maria had no idea. She just had to get away from the other mothers. She said, The top. The elevator stopped at the third floor long enough for the nurse to get off. Maria continued toward the tenth, going higher and higher, trying to leave her problems down below. She wheeled herself off the elevator and rolled past the sign for the mental health unit. The lobby was empty, except for the sleeping security guard seated at the nurse's station. Maria rolled past him and headed down the quiet corridor. The first two rooms Maria passed were empty, giant suites with only one bed in each. The patients at the top could afford the best care. Halfway down the corridor was a large window with steel bars across it. 
Maria parked the wheelchair beside the window and looked out at San Angeles, the city that had once been her home and was now her hell. The freeways down below were running smoothly, the only positive change that had been made. Crime hadn't been stopped or even slowed by the new laws, and people were losing rights every day. Maybe Enrique had been smart to question bringing a baby into this world. Maria closed her eyes and blocked out the scene below. Vanessa was here now, and they had to find a way to get her out of the hospital. If they didn't, Maria would end up in a place like this, only so much worse. She imagined the years of living with the pain and uncertainty. She wouldn't survive. She'd go crazy. The tears came with such force that Maria couldn't keep her eyes closed. A hand patted her shoulder, and a woman's voice told Maria everything would be all right. Embarrassed at her weakness, Maria stopped crying. She wiped her eyes with the back of her forearms. That's it, the woman said. Just relax. Whatever it is you're feeling right now will pass. The woman knelt in front of Maria, took her hand. Would you care to talk about it? Maria shook her head, but deep down she felt grateful someone was taking the time to comfort her. Do they have your baby? They took mine. Maria opened her eyes and saw the electronic wristband. She tried not to stare at the bright pink scar running across the woman's cheek. They took your baby? The woman nodded. And they're going to keep him as long as I'm in here. Maybe longer. Maria thought the woman looked familiar. I'm sorry to hear that. Is he with the church? The woman's face grew harsh. I'll get him back somehow. I don't care what I need to do. I'll get him out of there. Maria began to cry again. I can't let them take my daughter away. I haven't even seen her yet. The woman smoothed Maria's hair. You'll get her back. How? I have until midnight. The woman smiled, her face familiar, but one Maria couldn't place. Maybe she was one of the wealthy Maria had cleaned for. I can help you, the woman said, but I need you to do something for me first. The guard's asleep. You can walk right out. The woman shook her head and held up her hand. And receive a lethal shock the moment I cross the door? No thanks. And even if I didn't have this on, I wouldn't be safe. I'm not worried about the government killing me for my money anymore, but they're the ones keeping me here, all because I speak the truth. And then there's the public. With everything going on with all these births, people are going to hate me and Kyle a little more every day. There will come a time when everyone will want me dead. Kyle Bradford. Everyone knew the name. The photo of the happy family always on the news. Maria said, it wasn't your fault. Or Kyle's. Everyone knows it was the Muslims. That's just it, the woman said. It wasn't terrorists. It was the controllers. Although she was a mental health patient and what she was saying was ridiculous, the woman didn't seem crazy. Maria did not have the same blind faith in the government that most of the country did. Why would they do that? They knew what we'd created how powerful we'd made the clomiphene. They didn't want to pay for it, decided to share it with everyone. The woman told Maria to wait, 
then headed down the hall and disappeared into the last room. She returned a minute later and said, Let me have your hand. It was a photograph of a young man in black armor, the right side of his face a charred mess. Who's this? The man who killed my husband, one of the controllers. The man's ear was a black bump. His hair was gone. What do you want me to do? Spread the word to the people not to trust the government. Tell them the controllers lie and manipulate. Tell them the truth. And if they don't listen, then tell the next person, and the next, and the next. Tell everyone you meet, but be careful. The controllers have eyes and ears on every corner. Maria studied the woman's face and found only sincerity. She placed the photograph in her gown pocket and said, I will, I promise. The woman dug out a stack of hundred-dollar bills. They took away my boy, but they couldn't take away my money. I'm glad I can do some good with it. Maria held up the money, barely able to speak. Thank you, but I only need three thousand. This is too much. You'll need to take care of you, little one. This will help you get by for a bit, make life a little easier. The tears came again. How can I ever pay you back? I already told you, the woman said, as she turned around and headed back to her room. Now go get your daughter. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.